Brothers and sisters, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> you can open your Bibles, your few Bibles there, to Acts chapter 10. And we'll read all of Acts chapter 10 together again to maintain the sense of context of what's happening here. Pentecost to the Gentiles, the great fulfillment of all the epiphany prophecies. We'll be looking, uh, as we read through, recall that we'll be looking most closely at the section where Cornelius and Peter meet, verses 24 through 33. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. While they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, 
I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, For what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee, after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him, God, raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him, Stay a few days. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so we're looking at the third part of this sermon series on Epiphany, the Pentecost for the Gentiles that we see occurring here in God's wonderful work with Cornelius and Peter in this encounter to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is the section where they meet. Two weeks ago, we looked at Cornelius' vision, you recall that, and then last week we looked closely at Peter's vision, and today we'll take a close look at when Peter and Cornelius meet, and all that we can learn from that, grow from that in our own lives today. You recall, uh, the commentary says that this section is one of the most important units in Acts. Here the gospel goes out directly to a Gentile in his household for the first time. 
Everything is coordinated by God, as was the case with Saul's conversion. The Spirit's coming upon the group independently of any action by Peter also confirms God's direction and what takes place. A point Peter will make very clear when the, contra- when the controversial inclusion of the Gentiles is discussed later in chapter 11. In a sense, this scene is the book's turning point. As from here, the gospel will fan out in all directions to the people across a vast array of geographical regions, something Paul's three missionary journeys will underscore. What a joy it's going to be to look at those missionary journeys together as we go through the book of Acts and see the Lord's work in taking the gospel to the world. The thrice-repeated key principle to Peter from last week, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This certainly applies to the Old Testament dietary code and to the Old Testament separation code that kept Jews from engaging in close fellowship with the Gentiles. It's not just about food. It's also about their relationship with Gentiles. Now, in the New Covenant age, brothers and sisters, we are free to eat together with the lost, receiving meats they put before us with a clean conscience. Because in Christ, we are not to call common that which he has cleansed. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The spread of the gospel brings us into a new age a fellowship with the lost, far less restricted, observing God's moral law, never breaking his law, and meanwhile becoming all things to all men, as Paul wrote. So Peter's conscience rests as he goes to meet with the God-fearing Gentile, Cornelius. The Lord, in his providential timing, through this vision, through the words that he spoke to Peter, has relieved him of this conscience issue that he would have surely had to go to Cornelius the Gentile. Listen to Ephesians 2 again, verses 14 through 17. This is Paul describing the Old Testament Jew-Gentile separation code broken down by Christ. The whole code itself symbolized by this wall that you could see whenever you came in to the temple. For he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one, who both, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. There it is. Take a look at the pictures of the temple. You'll see it there. Separating Jew from Gentile. Remember we talked about it? You could be put to death for walking into that section if you were a Gentile. Going on. Having abolished in his flesh, that's Jesus, the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. And even here, you can begin to see that Jew and Gentile alike can go straight to God the Father through Christ. If you're a Jew, you don't. if you're a Gentile, You don't have to become a Jew first in order to go to the Father. The New Testament teaches us, I think, clearly that the Old Testament dietary laws, along with this middle wall of separation, have been broken down by Christ. Might it be healthier to eat that way? That's not part of the conversation. We're not arguing that. We're talking about it as a ritualistic requirement of the law. Broken down. Mark 7. 
When he, that's Jesus, had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning a parable, the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated. eliminated. Now listen to this. Thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of a man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. So Jesus himself, not just in Peter's vision, but prior to this, during Christ's life on earth, he made it clear that the New Testament age would be different. And that they didn't have a right understanding of the dietary laws. They didn't understand that they were pictures put there, pointing to the need for holiness. They didn't understand that what you ate couldn't define whether you were holy or not. They lost that understanding. So that's important background. Peter's coming to meet Cornelius. We'll look at the setting in verse 24. We'll look at when they first meet in verses 25 and 26. And then... Peter's first words to the group before he starts preaching, 27 through 29. And then Cornelius responds to Peter's question, sharing with Peter before them all his vision and their readiness, their eagerness to hear God's word from Peter. And then, as usual, some questions to know and to love and to obey God. Let's put the questions out before our eyes before we go through the text. How eager are you to read, to study, to hear, to memorize, and to know God's word How does your eagerness or lack of eagerness show itself? Is it apparent in your life that you're eager for God's word? Are you eager and active to help your family and your friends hear God's word, not just for yourself, but for others as well? Do you hear God's word when you read it, when you memorize it, when you study it, when you hear it preached as if it is coming to you from God himself, that you're doing business with God, the creator of all? And when you go to his word, do you seek to Hear all of God's word, every jot and tittle as we read today from Matthew 5. As to you from God for all of life, not just some of life. All of God's word for all of life. Is that how you approach it? Next. Does your big heart for the Lord sometimes lead you to make big mistakes as you pursue knowing him? Does your fire for the Lord sometimes burn wild and miss the mark? Different people have different problems. Does that happen with you sometimes? Going on. Can you sometimes have a condescending attitude towards your neighbors who are outside of Christ? Towards the lost? Especially those whose cultural background is very different than yours? Tattoos, the metal in the face ugliness that is multiplying in our culture? Could you lift such a one up and say, I am a man just like you? Or do you have a condescending attitude towards your neighbors who are outside of Christ, especially those whose cultural background and sinful brokenness is very different than your own? Next. Would you describe your home as welcoming and hospitable? Is hospitality a priority for your family that you plan 
you pray about and you seek to proactively accomplish. On the other side, how do you respond to invitations for in-home fellowship, especially from those whose background is different than yours, especially if it's from someone who's lost? Are scheduled prayer and fasting a part of your life? Do you believe sincere hunger to know God shows up in life in the form of regular, scheduled prayer and fasting? And is such prayer and fasting ever done in vain? Is it ever done in vain? Next, do you believe the Lord has teachers available to help you grow up in Him? That when you pray to Him and seek Him to teach you, that He will help you. He will give you teachers to help you. Are you prepared to have your life interrupted to be one of those helpers? To be a witness for Christ? Are you prepared to be interrupted? All right, verse 24. The following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So they've journeyed from Joppa and they all arrive at Caesarea and they're at Cornelius' home. They've come back to his home. Commentary tells us, it seems, it was above a day's journey nearly two from Joppa to Caesarea for it was the day after they set out that they entered into Caesarea. In the afternoon of that day, it is probable that they traveled on foot. The apostles generally do so. So it's a bit of a journey. It's quite a hike. So you can get a sense of they would have been probably tired and hungry and thirsty and looking for a comfortable place indoors. Next, Peter finds Cornelius and his household prepared for him. They're ready for his arrival. And also Cornelius has gathered together his relatives and his trusted friends. And there's no mention of food and drink uh, as they come together. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but we see the first thing that they're hungry for is the exchange of God's word. We see here, I hope you'll see Cornelius' eagerness. It's one of the key points of today's sermon, perhaps the key point for us to examine ourselves. Cornelius' eagerness to hear the word is on display for us from the very beginning. There's no sign of that sluggishness that is often that outward sign of not really being eager to embrace, to hear and embrace God's word. Commentary here says this term translated as relatives denotes family members. But in this case, presumably, presumably Cornelius' wife and children. And the term close friends refers to the most intimate friends, perhaps other soldiers from his unit who were God-fearers. Cornelius was evidently convinced that the divine message that he hoped to receive from Peter was relevant not only for himself, but for other people as well. Luke's narrative gives the impression that Cornelius and his relatives and close friends were gathered in Cornelius' house, ready to hear Peter speak as soon as he arrives. Cornelius' encounter with God's angel has made him eager to encounter God's messenger and hear from him God's words. Have you ever had this kind of anticipation and eagerness before in your life? Friday evening, we drove over to Atlanta and I had an opportunity to sit down and to join with others and listen to a man who I consider to be one of the most important public figures in the world today, Dr. Peter McCullough. And he spoke to us about the lies that we've been told regarding COVID. And I was so eager to listen to him talk. I was so eager to learn from him and to hear what he had to say. And I think rightly so. 
brothers and sisters, how much more so when we come before the living God. So this idea of eagerness, do you, it, does, that, does that light your heart on fire? Does it grip your mind and your will as you consider God's word in your life? The worship of God in your life, alone, with your family, with spouses, with one another, here today, as you're coming, does your heart say, I was glad when they said, let us go out to the house of the Lord. It's this inward desire, eagerness. It's a fire that comes from being embraced in the arms of the God who is a consuming fire. It is, it is an overflowing fountain that comes from drinking from the fountain of life. It's this inward desire that reveals itself with prompt diligence and meaningful exertion toward that which is desired. Prompt diligence and meaningful exertion toward that which is desired. It shows up in your life. I want us to note Cornelius' eagerness toward God and toward his word. Next. They first meet. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. So look at Cornelius. Look at his eagerness. He is so excited and he is so eager to hear the word that he himself meets Peter. He doesn't have one of his servants. He goes to the door himself, the centurion, who's got a house full of servants. He goes to the door himself. And then when he sees Peter, he falls down on the ground to worship him. Now, this is a big error in understanding. It's big. Yet, I think we can see it is an expression of Cornelius' sincere zeal to know the Lord. He just needs more knowledge. His, his zeal is just not balanced with knowledge at this point. Commentary says, Matthew Henry, his worshiping a man was indeed culpable, but... Considering his present ignorance, it was excusable, nay, and it was an evidence of something in him that was very commendable, and that was a great veneration for divine and heavenly things. Kind of that cage stage that we can all, we've probably all been guilty of to some extent, maybe not. We just discover some new and exciting reality from God's Word, or some new and exciting question that God takes you into, and everyone around you is like, is that all you're going to talk about? Right? But we bear with one another, right? Because it's the excitement of knowing God and seeking Him. And, and we, we have to learn to do that together in wisdom. And this is Cornelius. Excited, this vision that he's had. An angel shows up and tells him to call for somebody. And lo and behold, they come back and here he is. He's just like it said. He's thrilled. But let's look at Peter too. Peter's understanding and kindness. Think about his understanding and his kindness. Of course, remember Peter's zeal in the past. His love for Christ in the past he just didn't understand what he was about to go through and how Christ tenderly restored him. We see Peter demonstrating this in his simple correction as he lifts Cornelius up and he references him as a fellow man. Demonstrating that Peter looks to the Lord Himself is the only God. There's a couple of things we see Peter showing us. Christ alone is to be worshipped. And also that Peter had embraced the Lord's message, breaking down the hostility 
between Jew and Gentile. He touches him. He lifts him up. He joins with him in a common humanity when he speaks to him. So I want us to note sometimes big errors flow from big hearts. And our correction needs to be as fellow human beings, gentle and tender with one another in that, helping to redirect. Wise enough to see the good intentions behind the error, like Peter not excusing it, addressing it, but seeing the full picture, helping each other, and seeing that in our own lives too, being able to realize what's happening instead of castigating ourselves, but also being humble enough to receive correction. Commentary says, Peter's modest and indeed just and pious refusal of this honor that was done him. He took him up into his arms with his own hands, though time was when he little thought he should ever either receive so much respect from or show so much affection to an uncircumcised Gentile, saying, stand up, I myself also am a man, and therefore not to be worshipped thus. The good angels of the churches, right, so Peter serving as an angel of the church, a messenger. The good angels of the churches, like the good angels of heaven, cannot bear to have the least of that honor shown to them which is due to God alone. See thou do it not, saith the angel to John in Revelation 19 and 22, and in like manner the apostle to Cornelius. How careful was Paul that no man should think of him above what he saw in him from 2 Corinthians 12. Christ's faithful servants could better bear to be vilified than to be deified. Let that sink in. Peter did not entertain a, a surmise that his great respect for him, though excessive, might contribute to the success of his preaching, and therefore, if he will be deceived, let him be deceived. You see that? Peter, in his fleshly wisdom, might have thought, well, let's kind of let him think this before I preach. He didn't do that. No, let him know that Peter is a man and that the treasure is just in earthen vessels that he may value the treasure for its own sake. I think it's important for us to think about this for a minute. I think all of us have bumped into this either in your own heart or you observed it. And many, sadly, I think many churches and even denominations are built on this. The same type of sentiment exists today in the celebrity preacher model where the key leader is placed on a pedestal and adored as some higher category of human being less apt to sin, less fallen in some regard, a demigod. Legitimate respect in the hands of the undiscerning can become starry-eyed idolatry. And leaders, leaders must be on guard against this and reject it like Peter did. Oh, we are all mere mortals, fallen, Fallen, fallen. Equally in need of Christ's death, brothers and sisters. Don't ever forget that. Equally beloved before the Father in Christ. The only one who in and of himself is beloved. We're all in him. We're all in this together. We all have a role to play, to rightly demonstrate his church, to rightly worship him. So what is Peter? He's lifted Cornelius up, he's come in, he's had this kind of, he's coming in, he's getting introduced, what happens next? What does he say to them? And as he talked with him, that's Peter and Cornelius, he went in and found many who had come together. This is what Peter sees. 
Did he know that this was going to be the setting? I don't know. But here they are. It's not just Cornelius and his family. There's a crowd. Peter, then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, for what reason have you sent for me? So, this is a major cultural moment. It's hard to find things in our world to compare it to. But you can think of various probably cultural expressions of, of lostness and homes that might have that filled up inside of it and, and ways that you might feel very uncomfortable in that scenario, trying to engage within that household, within that house. Even if they're seeking the Lord, there's still those vestiges there. So Peter understands he needs to overcome that immediately. He needs to kind of get them all in this together with what he says first. And this is how he says it. He says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. He doesn't quote that exact thing, but he makes it clear to them, hey, this whole thing about Jew and Gentile that's keeping us apart, he has this beautiful awareness now of the global neighborhood of mankind. And he wants to quickly solve any discomfort arising from this prevalent, prevalent Jew-Gentile distinction that would have been on the forefront of their minds. Cornelius, his family, his close friends, walk into the temple and there's a sign that says, hey, you, if you cross here, you're going to be put to death. And now Peter's inside their house. So Peter knows that something must be said about this to ease that. I want us to note that there are strong cultural distinctions and even expressions of lostness that can often cause Christians to shrink back from loving our neighbors with our presence and our kindness and gospel truth. In some regard, kind of being like the Jews, thinking that the food that you eat determines whether you're righteous or not. That the, 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 the people you talk with can somehow immediately defile you. Or a home that you sit in has the power to defile your heart. Now, it is true that bad company corrupts good character, and we have to bear that in mind. But that reality can be taken too far and keep us from even engaging with the lost. Especially, as I've said, when there are these overt and obnoxious demonstrations of lostness that we have to often deal with. Do you remember how obnoxious you were outside of Christ? Can you not see how obnoxious you would be today apart from Christ? And how obnoxious you probably often are? <clears throat> Commentary. As Peter addresses Cornelius' relatives and friends, he begins by making a deliberate interpretive move from the vision that had puzzled him until now to the events in which God involves him by sending him to Gentiles an interpretive move facilitated by the directive of the Spirit to accompany the three envoys of a Roman officer without questioning. Peter sees that the issue at stake is not just food, but people. Peter voices the concerns that will be raised later by the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. He's going to have to go through this again. Since a Jew cannot associate with Gentiles, it is highly unusual 
that he has come to Cornelius' house. This is a very big deal. Now, I want us to think a little bit more about this Jew-Gentile separation that had been in place for generations. Commentary. The term translated as not allowed refers to behavior which is forbidden. Most English versions, versions translate with unlawful. A better rendering is against our laws because it leaves the question open which specific laws Peter was afraid to violate. Another helpful translation is a Jew is not allowed by his religion. The Mosaic law does not forbid Israelites to eat with Gentiles. Jews are only forbidden to eat impure food, which they can achieve by eating only the vegetables that are part of the Gentiles' diet. Nor does later Jewish tradition uniformly and unanimously stipulate a prohibition concerning Jews visiting Gentiles. But contact with Gentiles was always a potential source of moral defilements for Jews. So depending on which sect of Judaism you inhabited, there were various fences, various moats that they had put around themselves between them and the Gentiles to make sure that they didn't inadvertently make themselves unclean. For generations. That's why Peter could talk back to a heavenly vision. So this is a huge thing that God is doing in their culture. There may not be anything in our world today that compares to this level of cultural separation that was present at that time. And so arguing from greater to least, how much more so any cultural difficulties that we may face in terms of approaching and loving our neighbors for the sake of the gospel. So, after smoothing out the Jew-Gentile question by referencing God's message to not call any man common or unclean, Peter moves into the situation with a simple question. Just like he did before when the folks come, came to get him. This time he says, the reason. Okay, why'd you call me here? Cornelius answers. So, by way of welcome and by way of answer. Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour... And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Now, this is the third time we've heard this vision. And said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. So, he's welcoming, he's answering Peter's question, and he recounts the key details of his angelic vision and its message from God, emphasizing you can see the timing and that they all have the same God. That there's one most high God. And that they are under that one high God together. And that Cornelius, his household, and his friends... Because of what has happened, they've all come together and they all desire to learn from Peter about the Most High God and what this message is. The timing is worth considering. Cornelius reviews the sequence of events beginning four days ago, counting inclusively, which is how the Jews count. It was three days ago by the way we count, not counting inclusively. 
The chronology goes like this, and our way of counting would be in parenthesis. I'll point it out as I go. Day one, which is what we would call the start, Cornelius sees the angel. So that's their day one. Their day two, which would have been our day one, the emissaries arrive in Joppa. So we'd say the first day. They arrived in Joppa the first day after the vision. Day three, which would be our second day after the vision, they set out for Caesarea. And day four, which is the day we're reading about, which we would call the third day after the vision, they arrived. So God is directing the events all along the way. And the timing is, is kind of a way that God shows us his providential oversight of this whole thing. Beginning with the angel who appears to Cornelius during prayer at the ninth hour, Cornelius basically repeats the account for the third time in the passage with some slight variation, a repetition that for us underscores the divine direction behind what is taking place. It's another great encouragement for us is to realize God's hand in bringing all of this together, his great providence, the way he brought the vision, the way he brought the angel, the way he had taken Peter there to Joppa in the first place, the fact that the centurion had been brought there through the Roman governance of that time had been brought to that moment. All of the providence of this moment brought together. Do you think God is any less active today? This should be of great encouragement to us. Everything that we are experiencing is also choreographed ahead of time by God and carried out through his great hand of providence. Next, I want us to see that Cornelius' experience emphasizes the importance of scheduled prayer and fasting as expressions of sincere love for God as we seek his face. I emphasize this when we first crossed through this with his first, when we first saw his vision. This is bringing to us the idea of prayer without ceasing, that scriptural imperative. Commentary says, observe at the ninth hour of the day, three of the, three of the clock in the afternoon, Most people were traveling or trading, working in the fields, visiting their friends, taking their pleasure, or taking a nap after dinner. Yet then Cornelius was at his devotions, which shows how much he made religion his business. And then it was that he had this message from heaven. Those that would hear comfortably from God must be much in speaking to him. It's easy to think that we can compartmentalize our lives. And, you know, this time is for God, this other time is for me. But this experience of praying without ceasing is set before us. Yes, he made it his business by scheduling it, but you can see that his whole life was being lifted up before God. Included in this would have been fasting regularly before the Lord. Fasting regularly before the Lord. This is something that we see in Scripture It is essentially an imperative for us Christians. The question for you is, do you fast? Do you schedule fasts? Matthew 6, 16 through 18, note the phrase, when you fast. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So when we fast, we're instructed of what our public appearance should be, not bringing attention upon ourselves, going on. But when you fast, there's the phrase again, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So we are to fast. And similarly, like our prayers are to be done in secret, we don't go 
out and just pray in front of everyone to demonstrate our prayer life before everyone, to be seen by men. Same with our fasting. So they go together, prayer and fasting go together, and yes, they can be spontaneous, but I think we can see here that this eagerness, this diligence to know God expresses itself through these actions that we take, prayer and fasting. Is this true of your life? Cornelius' experience exemplifies the Lord's attentiveness to sincere and humble prayers toward him. It's never in vain to approach the Lord like this. And we see the Lord's responsiveness to teach us when we reach out for his word. We reach out for him for wisdom. He is responsive. He hears us. He inclines his ears to us because of Christ. James 4.8, part of that verse says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what this is teaching, focus on what it is teaching, and that is if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Now don't hear what it's not saying. That when you turn away from God, that he turns away from you. Because he's not like us. God is always drawing near to us, his people in Christ. Okay? This is not meant to teach you that somehow God does not draw near to you when you turn your back on him. No, because when we are faithless, he is faithful to his covenant. He is faithful to his own. He goes and gets that sheep that turns away from him. But what you should hear from this is that your prayers and your heart for him and when you seek his face, it will never, ever be in vain. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And Cornelius is an example of this. Revelation 8 shows us a beautiful picture into heaven of what this looks like, at least in this situation. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So what are our prayers compared to? Incense before God's throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Your prayers. My prayers. Cornelius' prayers. Peter's prayers. Then the angel took the censer. God responds. God finds our prayers in Christ pleasant. The aroma to him is pleasant. Do you find yourself pleasant to God when you pray to him? I struggle with that. So often, I I am not walking in the righteousness of Jesus before the throne of God, but I'm focusing on my failures. And I'm thinking that God's kind of like, okay, will you get this over with, please? Do you deal with that? Then the angel took the censer. This is how God responds to the sincere prayers of faith of his people. And the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. God answers prayers in different ways at different times. I'm not going to say that every prayer gets answered like this. But I want you to see that Cornelius is an example of the real-time relationship that we have with God in prayer. And that his ears inclined to you And when you seek his face, it is never in vain. And he always responds to you. 
He always answers you. You may not hear the answer. You may not know the answer. But he always answers your prayers. And best of all, he draws near to you when you draw near to him. Next. This event shows us how the Lord uses his people to serve and teach the word to those who are eagerly, sincerely seeking the Lord. This is true for seekers who are yet to be born again and for those believers who are seeking to grow up in Christ. And this is a beautiful thing when this happens, when a heart eager to share Christ is brought to meet with one whose heart is eager to know Christ. God does this. You see him bringing Peter and Cornelius together. And we should long for this as well on both sides of that equation. To have God bring to us those in our lives who can teach us the things that we're hungry to know and to have an opportunity to also share the good news of Christ, the wisdom of his word with those who are hungry to know it. In all forms, whether it's evangelism, discipleship, counseling. Next. I want to just stop again and just say, look at Cornelius' eagerness for the word on display. Not only that they're there and that he planned ahead, but what he says, we're all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Commentary says, to the end that Peter may be more ready and willing to teach, Cornelius affirmeth that himself and the rest will be apt to be taught, this is Calvin, and ready to obey God. For this serveth not a little to move the teacher to take pains with the hearers, when as he hopeth assuredly that they shall profit thereby. Another thing Calvin said one time, going off my notes, as this comes into my memory, pray for me, is, you know the Holy Spirit has anointed a gathering when two things take place. A gathering of Christians. When the preacher is preaching God's word and truth, and the people are eagerly, hungrily taking it in as God's That only occurs under the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. Next, I want us to look at this concept of before God. I mentioned it in the questions at the beginning of the sermon, but think about this, what Cornelius is saying. Commentary says, Calvin again, Assuredly, so often as the word of God is set before us, we must thus think within ourselves that we have not to deal with a mortal man, but that God is present and doth call us for from this respect of God ariseth the majesty of God's word and reverence in hearing the same we're dealing with God when we go to his word and this is Cornelius eager heart flows from this as he knows he's not just dealing with Peter he's dealing with God And the things that Peter is bringing to him are from God, the creator of all, the most high God. Not these false demon-embedded gods that he had been a part of throughout his existence as a Roman soldier. But the most high God, the one true God. Next, there's another important principle here for us. 
in regards to hearing God's word, not only as if it is from God, but that we want to hear all things. All things that God has to say to us. All things. You see, our tendency, brothers and sisters, is to pick and choose what we like from God's word. And to resist hearing things from his word that we don't like. That we don't want to hear. Now Cornelius, Cornelius' love for God, his desire to know God, he says to hear all things, is what he says. Commentary says, this only is true faith when we embrace not the one half of the word of God alone, but subject ourselves wholly, wholly unto it. And yet, notwithstanding, there be few examples in the world of this full and universal faith, for the more part doth not submit themselves to the doctrine of God as if they had made a covenant with God, save only so far as it pleaseth them. If anything displeased them, they either carelessly contemn or mislike the same. But Cornelius doth wisely distinguish between God and man, for he maketh God the author of the doctrine and leaveth nothing for man besides the ministry and the embassage. <clears throat> So, the same questions to end that you heard at the beginning. Will you examine yourself in regards to your eagerness to hear God's word, to read God's word, to study God's word, to memorize God's word? What is your heart towards God's word? And ultimately, it's really your heart for God, because that's what Cornelius was after. How does your eagerness reveal itself? How does your lack of eagerness reveal itself? Why do you think you might have eagerness welling up inside of you? Do you look back on those times and see that it's because the gospel has become so much more precious to you in those moments? And the great work of Christ on your behalf is being embraced by real faith within your soul and mind at that time? And it wells up into an eagerness to drink more of him. Are you eager and active to help your family and friends hear God's word? Can there be any separation of this eagerness? Can you be truly eager to have God's word for yourself? To know him more and not also be eager for others to hear his word also? What does it mean if you find yourself eager to tell others about God's word, but you are not in it yourself? This eagerness brothers and sisters, arises. What we're talking about, this divine gladness and willingness arises from heaven and a, divine, a divinely granted motive of love for God and for his glory. Will we ever be pure and perfect? No. But this is what this eagerness is all about. And it will show up in a desire to have the word for yourself and for others. Do you receive it as if it is from God? This gets to a lot of things. Cornelius' preparation with his family and with his relatives and with his close friends. I wonder what his home was like that day when they arrived. I wonder what clothes he was wearing that day when they arrived. Do you think if he knew that Peter was coming from God that would have impacted his preparation for that moment. When you come here, knowing that we're coming together before God, does that impact your preparation 
for coming here? Do you seek to know all of God's word by his grace and live it out in all of your life? Have you ever made big mistakes because of your passion for God? Cage stage, I mentioned. Maybe you're still in that now, to some extent. Learn from this and, and examine yourself in that regard. I think we've been through repentance as a church in this regard, in terms of some important doctrinal distinctions about who we are, perhaps having those over-prioritized and more important to us than they should have been. Very important, very important, but unbalanced perhaps. Does your fire for the Lord sometimes burn wild and miss the mark? So this is about wisdom and learning how to walk with zeal and knowledge. And so we all want to continue to grow in this. We want more zeal, but as the zeal grows, we need knowledge. We want more knowledge, but we want our zeal to grow as well. Next. Do you see in yourself a condescending attitude towards your neighbors who are outside of Christ? Especially those whose cultural background is very different than your own, or even those neighbors that you have who call themselves Christians, but who walk in a very different a very different expression in their lives than what you have in your life. And maybe, maybe it's even true that they have taken on the vestiges of a pagan culture. And do you have a condescending attitude towards them? A reluctance to have fellowship with them? Next, would you describe your home as welcoming and hospitable? What steps have you taken to have your neighbors into your home? What steps have you taken to get to know your neighbors? Is hospitality, hospitality a priority for your family? Have you had family hospitality conversations? What can we do together to improve? How do you respond to invitations when people invite you to their home? Because that's a part of being hospitable as well, is allowing others to serve you, especially from those whose background and life expression is, could be so much different than yours. <clears throat> And I'll just say it bluntly, I do think that there are obviously superior forms of Christian expression in our lives. How we dress, the words we use, the music we listen to, the things that define our culture, there, is superior, there are superior Christian expressions of this, more biblical than others. So don't hear, me, don't hear what I'm not saying. But do you allow that to keep you from loving and serving and taking the gospel Next. Are scheduled prayer and fasting a part of your life? If not, why? If so, how's it going for you? You can share that with us. Do you believe sincere hunger to know God shows up in regular prayer and fasting? Or has some sense of vanity or futility, is a better word, futility crept into your thinking? That, oh, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I mean, God is sovereign over all things. He's predestined everything that comes to pass. Who cares if I pray? It's all going to happen anyways. He saved me. It's all going to happen anyways. Has a sense of futility crept into your approach to prayer? Or ministry? Or service? Well, you never pray or fast in vain, brothers and sisters, when you seek the Lord. You never do so. <clears throat> Next, do you believe the Lord has teachers available to help you grow up in Him? And, and do you know how to seek them out and find them and, and not 
deify them, but to learn them and be thankful, to learn from them and be thankful for them. And in, in today's world, wow, there's a lot out there. We have to be careful, but there's a lot of really good teaching available to us from God's Word that's so easy to get to. Next. Are you prepared to have your life interrupted to be a witness for Christ? We make our schedules. Peter got interrupted during prayer time, right at lunchtime. He was hungry. He got interrupted. How do you deal with interruptions? And stepping back, recalling this is epiphany for the Gentiles. Let the nations be glad. The text of God's word tells us, let the nations be glad. As we read in our liturgy, forgive me for a minute while I turn to it. We've read it today already. It's been there during the entire time of Epiphany, if I recall. I chose this because we're in the time of Epiphany. Jesus Christ has dominion from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. We're seeing this in today's text. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before Him and His enemies will lick the dust. All kings shall fall down before Him. What year did the Roman Empire become a Christian nation? All nations shall serve Him. When will America become a Christian nation? When will every nation become a Christian nation? When will we see epiphany to the Gentiles completed? Because it's happening. The Lord Jesus Christ is placing all of His enemies under under His feet. The Father is placing all of His enemies under His feet with each passing day. And this text shows us an example of it. The same Christ, the same Spirit, the same truth, working now in us, His people, for His glory and for our good still to this day. May God bless us to learn from this text and for these principles and others that maybe you've noticed to help us to be transformed, to enjoy being sanctified together and grow up in Him, in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful to you once again for your infinite glory and majesty. You are the creator of all things. And you sent forth Christ, your Son, to redeem your elect out of the kingdom of darkness, to wash away our sins and transfer us into the kingdom of light, and to restore us to a place of favor by satisfying your justice upon Christ who took our place. Oh, how we praise you and thank you for the remission of sins. Lord, we rejoice that between now and the day we leave this earth, that because of your goodness to us and your faithfulness to us and your power from heaven, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit and your word that you preserve given to us, that we can participate in doing your will and expressing our gratitude to you through love towards you and love towards our neighbors. Oh, bless us, we pray, Lord God, to learn from this text today, to see where we can repent and grow and to become more like Christ, our glorious Savior and our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.